that, let's turn to our scripture for today. Today's uh, passage is Mark chapter 9, verse 2 to 13. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that the first, that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Good morning. Good to be with you on this rainy, cold Sunday morning. If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And before we dive into today's passage, I want to go back to one of David's announcements and urge you, please, to consider signing up to be one of our children's ministry teachers. As David has said, we're going to be monitoring the COVID situation very closely. We're only going to restart children's ministry programs once it's safe to do so. But again, to underline what he just said, we need four to five new teachers. Now, why would you consider volunteering? I, I can think of several different reasons. First, every time that we baptize one of our children up here, we ask the parents to vow that they're going to raise their little one in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that they are going to teach their child to know God and to know about his ways. And then we turn and we look at the rest of you, and we ask this question. We ask if you as a congregation are willing to undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of their child. We ask that not because it's a formality. It's a real question to which you respond with a real answer. And that answer means several things, one of which is that you have said you will help to teach this child. And as a church now, we are coming to you, letting you all know that we have a need for teachers, that we need teachers to help our children grow in their faith and so this is one of the reasons why you would consider this, because we have a need, let you know that, and you have a responsibility. Second reason, however, this one is weighted more on the side of opportunity. I've talked with uh, some of you about how concerned you are for your children as the world is increasingly uh, more overt in its antagonism toward Christ, and that this world is 
determined to teach and instill thoughts and ideas into our children that have nothing to do with Christ. This, then, is an opportunity for you to do something about that, to push back against that tide a little bit, and to trust that the Holy Spirit will take your steady, regular faithfulness in the lives of our children, teaching them on Sunday morning, and that he'll use that to lay a foundation for them of why they need Christ. That he'll use that to help them understand and love what Jesus actually came to do for them, that he will then use that to give them a sense of what it looks like to follow Christ, of what it looks like to rely on his grace in order to do what Christ calls the children to do. This is one of those key ways that we can impact and influence our world in a very small kind of way on a Sunday morning. So there's responsibility, there's opportunity, and then thirdly, there's identity. And this is you identifying with God, with what moves his heart, and with what he loves. You go through the scriptures, through the gospels, you realize that Jesus loved children. He wanted them to be able to come to him. He held them up as examples to the rest of us of what mature faith looks like, and he gave strong warnings about hurting them. There is something godlike about caring for little people, something godly about expanding your heart to make sure that they have what they need in order to live well in this world. And part of that does include teaching them about the God who made them, the God who delights in them, and the God who really wants them to be with him for all eternity. And so the bottom line here is that I'm asking you to take seriously our call to be one of our teachers. You think about Jesus. Jesus is the child of God, the beloved son of God. He gave up his life so that what? So that you and I could be children of God, and we are longing that God would then take our children and adopt them into his family. But in order for that to happen, then they're going to have to be taught. They're going to have to learn what that means, just like you've learned what that means. So again, take some time, maybe take out your phone right now, make a little note to yourself to consider whether or not you would be one of these teachers when we restart. Okay, shifting gears now. We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Mark, and as we said last week, we've come to a really important part of the book. It's a part where Jesus very intentionally takes his disciples aside three different times in two chapters to teach them plainly what he's come to do here as Messiah. That as Messiah, he must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and then must rise the third day. Three different times he lays this out bluntly for his disciples, and three different times they completely miss what he's saying. They understand his words, he speaks plainly, but they're not on board with his agenda. And as you go through these chapters, you realize they have an agenda of their own. Now in today's passage, this is not one of those intentional teaching times where he gathers all of them together, but in today's passage, you hear exactly the same kind of things in those other three times. That verse nine, Jesus will rise from the dead, meaning what? That first he has to die. In verse 12, that it's written in scripture, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. It's scripture that affirms this is not an option for him. The NIV translation states it this way, that he must suffer and be rejected. He must suffer, be rejected, die, and then be raised. This passage is not one of those explicit teaching times, and yet it has all of those elements in it. 
which means that in these two very short chapters, Jesus goes over this material four different times with some of his disciples. Now, when Scripture says something once, pay attention. It's important. When God says it twice, it's really important. It's essential for life. You can't avoid this. Three times, its importance goes beyond anything you can imagine. It's like when the seraphim in the temple declare that God is holy, holy, holy. He is more holy than anything you've ever encountered on this earth. Four times in Scripture says that this is in a category by itself. So I want to urge you this morning, pay attention. These are very familiar words. Don't let their familiarity lull you to sleep. There's something really critical here for us, something that Jesus thought was critical for the disciples, something that the disciples kept missing. And today what we're going to see is that this very critical part of what Jesus is trying to communicate comes out in a passage all about glory. And so today, three things. First, something is here in this passage that we have to see about the glory of God. Secondly, there's something here that predisposes us not to see it, And then third, there's the remedy if we're going to see it. So something that we have to see about the glory of God, something that predisposes us not to see it, and the remedy that we need, and that's all tied up with Christ's suffering and his death. So let's dive in. First, this account is all about seeing God's glory. Verse 2 tells us that this event takes place six days after the last time that Jesus intentionally taught his disciples about the future took place six days after the last time, and it took place on a high mountain. And the combination of those two things, six days on a high mountain, takes you back into the book of Exodus. When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai. That's where God delivered to them the Ten Commandments. Afterwards, in chapter 24, God calls Moses to come up to him on the mountain. And as Moses starts up the mountain, the glory of God settled on the mountain in a cloud that looked like fire. And Moses waited there six days on the mountain until God called him to enter the cloud. So when in the book of Mark you read that this is six days later on a high mountain, you're being primed to expect something here that's related to God and is related to his glory. Next thing that we're told is we're told that Elijah and Moses are there talking with Jesus. And if you cast your mind again back into the Old Testament, you realize that Elijah, as well as Moses, also had a face-to-face conversation with God. That also took place on the same mountain. Again, we're being prepared. We're going to see something of God here. We're going to get to see his glory in this face-to-face encounter. That's all on the periphery, though. The center is focus is on Jesus, who no longer looks like he did. When Moses talked with God, his face shone afterward. It reflected the glory of God back to others. Jesus, however, is not reflecting anyone else's glory. The cloud that covers them in verse 7 hasn't yet appeared when he's transfigured before them in verse 2. Something is happening so that his clothes are, are now brighter than anything on earth could make them. They're dazzling white. They're shining. They have a luminosity. There's something glorious coming from him, not from outside of him. He's not reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is now producing it. And the disciples understand some of what's going on here. 
Peter blurts this thing out about tents. He's blurting, but what he's blurting is the hope of Israel, that God would come to live among them again. That the glory of God that departed from the temple when the Israelites went into exile is finally back among them again. And so Peter wants to put up three tents, three dwelling places. The Greek word there for tent is uh, translated as tabernacle in other places. Again, taking you back into the Old Testament. When God chose to have his presence live among his people in a tent. And Peter is suggesting here that the glory is back. And that what they need is a place to house it. They need this, tent, this tabernacle. Peter, James, and John know that they are in the presence of something glorious. And if all that was not enough, there's the cloud. Again, reminds you of the glory cloud that signals God's presence. The cloud that covers them in verse 7. And there's a voice that speaks to them. It doesn't speak to Jesus. It speaks to them. And it declares, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here is God's son revealing his glory. The whole passage is all about glory. The glory of God. Glory that doesn't need a tent to live in. Remember, again, the, the Old Testament tabernacle was a veil. It was there to protect the people. They knew where God was, that he was among them. They knew that they could meet with him, but their sinfulness required that something separate them from him. There's no need for that something any longer. No need for a tabernacle, no need for a tent, because Jesus is here. He is tabernacling among them. He is the glory of God living among them, living among human beings again. But not as fully as he could. There is real glory here. But just as quickly as Jesus makes his presence known, he veils it again. Suddenly, there's no more transfiguration. No more shining clothes. The divine cloud, that's gone. The faithful human attendants from the past, they're, they're gone. Jesus is still here, which means by definition that glory is still here. The presence of God is still here, but it's veiled again. Veiled so that no one can see it. You think, why is that? Jesus tells the disciples why. Verse 9, on the way back down the mountain, he charges them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. One day, the disciples will be free to tell everyone what they've seen, but not yet. One day, everyone can know, but not yet. Something has to happen first. There's still something missing, something that if you don't see, you will misunderstand Christ. You, you won't really see his glory. You'll think you do, but you won't because his glory includes something that at this moment has not yet fully been seen. For that to happen, Jesus first has to be raised from the dead, which means he first has to die. The glory of Jesus, the glory of God, can only be fully understood from the vantage point of the cross. If you don't have the vantage point of the cross, then your understanding of God's glory is incomplete. You're not really seeing him as he is, unless you're seeing him from the cross. What you're seeing is simply an aspect of him. It's a slice of his glory, this brilliant, blinding, terrifying slice. 
but you're not seeing all of him. You're not seeing God as he is, and so you won't relate to him as he is. Instead, you're going to relate to a God who doesn't exist. Now, that might be a God that you like better, this all-powerful, dazzling God, but it's God who isn't real. Because Jesus' suffering, rejection, and death are tied to his glory. They're essential parts of it. And so the, so the disciples cannot tell about his glory until it's set within its full context, until it incorporates his suffering. And that's the litmus test of whether you're following the true God who reveals himself or you're following a God that someone's made up. Any theology that does not put Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection at the center of who he is, and therefore at the center of your faith, both the center of what happened 2,000 years ago and the center of how you live out your faith now, any theology that tells you, here's how to live, here's what you should do, these are the good things of life, any theology that tells you how to live but doesn't tie your ability to do that back to what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, any theology that does not connect your actions to what he did then is not about Jesus. It's using Jesus for a different agenda. Using him as an example instead of focusing on what he says is essential about himself. And there are a lot of theologies out there that do that. They will focus on something that really is true about Jesus something that he did, or something about his character, but they'll take that aspect and they will abstract it from this core of his suffering and his death. And so, for instance, they'll focus on how he treated women, or stood up for people who were poor and oppressed, or confronted the religious and political establishment. They will take something that really is true, but then emphasize that element as though it was the key element of who he is and what his ministry was all about. And they'll relate everything else to that element instead of relating everything to the cross. His suffering being rejected and dying, then what? It, it becomes something that just, it happens along the way. But it's something that's no longer necessary, no longer an essential, no longer a must for him in order to successfully complete his mission. And so those theologies do what? They take the Messiah and they turn him into a good teacher, an amazing miracle worker, a social reformer, an example of a good person to follow, but not someone whose glory required that he suffered and be treated with contempt and be killed in order to overcome evil, to be raised from the dead in order to restore you and me along with the rest of the world. So if you look at Jesus, you try to learn from him, follow him, in any way that does not require him to suffer, be rejected, and killed, that does not put that at the center of all that he is, you will create a Messiah who doesn't exist. You'll follow a God that you made up for yourself. That's point one. We have to see that the glory of Christ is linked inextricably to his suffering and death. Point two. Unfortunately, we are predisposed not to see it. Jesus could not be plainer. He charges the guys, verse 9, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He could not be clearer. 
And their response, verse 10, is to question what this rising from the dead might mean. You think, really? <laughs> They're discussing the ins and outs of what it might mean to rise from the dead, like, like that's confusing. You would think that statement was pretty obvious. I mean, chapter 5, Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. And he made sure, he singled these three guys out, Peter, James, and John. He took them with him. They're the only ones that he allowed to go with him at the time. They have already seen a physical resurrection. But here they're discussing what he might mean by this. Like, maybe he meant something different about this rising from the dead than what he did earlier. That somehow, okay, that was a literal rising from the dead, but now this one is maybe not literal, maybe metaphorical. Metaphorical rising from metaphorical death. One that needs to be discussed. It's a really clear, obvious phrase. He's speaking plainly again. But to their minds, it has to mean something else. They still don't expect him to physically visibly rise from the dead even after he says he will. Now what's that tell you, the fact that they're having a discussion about what rising from the dead means? It tells you they're still not on board. They still have a totally different idea in mind about what it means for him to be the Messiah. That it just can't mean an awful bloody death. It, it, it has to mean something else. That's one indicator that they're not on board with thinking that it's necessary for Jesus to suffer and die. Here's the second indicator. Verse 11. They ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You notice here they've taken up his word must, the word that he introduced last week. But instead of applying it to him, that he must suffer and be treated with contempt, they apply it to Elijah coming first. Why must Elijah come first? Now, a little backstory here. The Old Testament prophet Malachi references Elijah in chapter 4 of his book. God is speaking there about the end times, and he says, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's a role for Elijah before the day of the Lord, and that is to turn people's hearts to each other instead of against each other. There's also a hint there that something else is going on at that time as well. The verse right before people turn to each other, God says, verse 4, that they are to remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This is the only place in the Old Testament where Elijah and Moses appear together. And it's in the context of restored relationships, of people remembering God's law, obeying what God has said of their hearts turned toward the Lord, and their hearts turned toward each other. It's a time when Elijah is going to help facilitate people living out, what, the, the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a time of restoration of everything that is broken about us as people. Jesus actually uses that language here in Mark chapter 9, verse 12, that Elijah comes to restore all things. That was the expectation of, their, of the day as taught, verse 11, by the teachers of the law. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, 
We just saw Elijah. Now, with Moses, that means the end is here. The great and awesome day of the Lord is here now. That means people's hearts are what? They're turning to God and they're turning to each other. The restoration is here. And so they're thinking, oh, man, uh, maybe Jesus forgot about what Elijah being here means. Don't really want to act a, ask a direct question. That didn't work out real la good last week. Peter rebuked Jesus, got called Satan in response. Let's, let's ask a more subtle question instead. Hey, Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And if Jesus says because it's written that he restores all things, then they can say, okay, but <laughs> since he's here, then so is the restoration, which means there's no need for you to suffer, right? And if that's the case, there's certainly no need for you to die, and we can stop having this conversation that none of us want because we don't want to follow a guy who has to suffer because that means we'll have to suffer too. How do you know that that's what's going on in their minds? Pay attention to how Jesus responds. He says Elijah does come first to restore all things, but he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus anticipates where they're going with their question, and he's one step ahead. He tackles their real issue head on. Now, just, just as an aside, you often see Jesus doing this. Often his answer seems to include something that people are not saying out loud. And that's because Jesus will often discern this question behind the question that people are really asking. He understands that there's this deeper heart intention that's masked by the surface-level question. And when Jesus discerns that that's going on, he directs his response to this deeper, more important question. He discerns that the disciples really want to know why he keeps talking about dying when that does not seem necessary to them. When it seems like people will be restored without him having to do that, to which Jesus simply says, if what you believe is true, that when Elijah comes, everyone will be perfectly restored to God and to each other, if that's true, then how is it written that the Son of Man has to suffer and be treated with contempt? How does your belief make sense of what God has said? Are you really sure that your thinking aligns with God's? Because he's including something here that you're not talking about. Oh, by the way, verse 13, Elijah did come, and he suffered. It's as though Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, who paid the, paved the way before me, was imprisoned, had his head cut off. If that's the way they treated him, <laughs> don't you think they're going to treat me the same way? He basically says to them, you're wrong. You have focused on the restoration. That really is coming. He starts with that. But he says that's only part of the story. And the other part is this thing that you don't want to talk about. So then where did their thinking go off the rails? How did they and everyone else of their day miss reading the same things in Scripture that Jesus read there? Things where he fully expected God's Messiah to suffer. 
And I'm not talking here about foreshadowing things, things that are a little tricky to figure out, like when Joseph gets thrown into prison before he's raised out of it again. That's foreshadowing, right? He's suffering, goes down, and then is resurrected out of it. Or of David, who's run out of Israel, sent away from the presence of God, and then later restored back to his throne and to the presence of God. Or of Jeremiah, the prophet. He gets mocked, beaten, thrown into the stocks, then thrown into a cistern, and then brought back up out of it. If you see there, through the lens of what Jesus is talking about, you see suffering being rejected, might as well have been dead, and then raised. I'm not talking about any of those things, things that are hard to discern unless you have the overall theme of Scripture. I'm talking about things that were super clear, like Isaiah 53, where God's servant is clearly going to suffer. How did the disciples miss those things? They've accepted an underlying premise, the idea that when Elijah shows up, that his words alone will be enough to change people's hearts. That he will somehow say things the right way and that people will finally respond the right way. That he'll urge them to love God's law and to love each other and that's all that's going to be needed. People then will now want to love like that now that it's been presented to them in a way that they can get on board with without anyone having to suffer, be rejected, or die. You hear the underlying premise there? That given the right presentation by the right person, that we can talk, persuade, coerce ourselves and each other into what? Into godliness. Do you hear the underlying persistent belief that people have the ability to clean up their own mess, to make themselves good? There's even a religious angle here the disciples are working from. They're not denying that people do bad things. They recognize humanity needs to be restored, to be reconnected to God, reconnected to each other. What they're denying is how hard it is to do that. They're saying to Jesus, yes, of course, people hate God's law. They've turned against each other. That's true. We need Elijah to come. But when that happens, people can fix all of that hate. They can alter their anti-God, anti-human stance. We just need the right person to point us in the right direction. Jesus, doesn't Elijah have to come first? To which Jesus quietly replies, if that's so, if you're right, then how is it written of the Son of Man? that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And in that moment, Jesus just put his finger on something that we really hate. Not simply the fact that we do bad things. That's embarrassing, especially when you get caught. But the real embarrassment is when God says, yeah, you do bad things, and you can't fix what you can break. And we don't like hearing that. It offends our pride. We hate our sin. We hate even more our inability to deal with our sin. And so in the face of the revealed glory of God dwelling among them, the disciples are not captured by his glory. 
by the suffering kind of glory. They're captured by the glory and the ability of the human race to straighten itself out. In the presence of blinding, breathtaking, divine glory, the disciples are consumed with how good they can be on their own without any help, certainly without Jesus having to suffer on their account. And this is the issue in every human heart. It's the issue that you have to deal with every time you deal with another human being or when you have to deal with yourself. It's the underlying belief that you, me, anyone can do better, that we have the ability to be better people. And because this is our working assumption about human beings, we are constantly surprised when people aren't better. Surprised when their inability spills out and then impacts not only themselves, but impacts all of their relationships. This is why parents get surprised at their children. They love their children. They nurture them. They instruct them. They give them everything that they need for their life. And then children, you and all, I all know this as having been children, children make ridiculous, harmful choices. Choices that they know they shouldn't, and their parents are surprised. Why? Because deep down, parents really believe that if we only provide the right environment and give the right instruction, that's all our children need to turn out well. That we can restore them with moral instruction alone, without having to tie that back to the necessity of Jesus having to suffer and die. It surprises parents. It surprises social workers. I was just talking to someone this past week who was angry. They'd worked very hard with their client to set up a budget and a system so that their client could monitor their spending, and in less than a month, the client plunged themselves into debt because they ignored everything that had been set up. They understood it plainly. They agreed to it. They worked to set it up. They ignored it because in that moment they needed, that they needed to implement it, something else was more important to them, something else that controlled their decision. And the social worker was upset. Why? Because deep down, they really believe that if you just give people the right system and explain those systems well, that you can restore people without Jesus needing to suffer and die and rise from the dead. That we can deal with what's inside of ourselves without that. We are not as bad as we could be. That is absolutely true. But we do not have the ability to be as good as we need to be on our own. But man, we sure think we do. Our inability to consistently do what is best and right for ourselves is what frustrates every social program. Our inability sabotages the best therapy session. Our inability undermines all of our education-based interventions. We hope to do the work of Elijah of restoring people to doing the right thing, restoring them to each other, all while bypassing their need of this suffering Messiah who has to die for them. And we prove over and over and over and over that it's just not possible. But instead of giving up our belief, what do we do? We double down on it. We get energized. We try harder. We go to great lengths to prove that we're the exception, that we can be good if we just really want to. Or we get angry offended that anyone would suggest we can't be better than we are. Who do you think you are? Say something like that. 
Or we try to make the other person sound silly. We ask rhetorical questions. So then you're saying that people can't do anything for themselves? It's not what this passage says. Jesus is saying you can't make yourself good enough for God or good enough to move consistently towards someone else. But we don't want to hear that. We get angry. Or we just get depressed. We throw up our hands and say, well, then what's the point? Why bother? If we really can't be any different, why even try? Or this one's really subtle. I've used this a lot. We explain our failings. We attribute them not to our inability, but to something outside of ourselves, to what someone else said or did, to circumstances that were outside our control. And so we'll say, okay, yeah, this time, you know, I lost my temper, I I was critical, I was complaining, because this other thing happened. And the implication is what? That if this other thing had not happened, I would have been better. I'd have acted better. What is that? That's saying that under the right circumstances, you would be perfectly good. That the problem is not deep within you. It's not your inability. But that the real problem is located somewhere else in the rest of the world. Or we'll look at one of our sin patterns and say, yeah, I do that, but I can stop anytime I want to. What is that? That's your confidence that you can be better. You just haven't wanted to nearly enough. You still believe that you have the ability, even though that you demonstrate over and over and over and over that you have no interest in trying to be better. And it never occurs to you to think, maybe the fact that I have no interest in trying is the indicator that I really can't. This belief that we have what it takes to overcome the worst of ourselves is lodged deep within the human heart. And it gets worse, I think, because the modern age that you and I live in just takes that belief and turbocharges it. The modern age is dominated by secularism, by the belief that you can order a society, that you can approach the study of this world either by being indifferent to God or rejecting him. Which means that when it comes to dealing with us individually or societally, we're all that there is by definition. And so we only have ourselves to help ourselves. And so we can't afford to believe that we need outside help to rescue us from evil because there is no outside help. And so the issue of inability that Jesus is putting his finger on, of our inability to rescue ourselves from evil, This may be one of the things that will be most offensive about the faith to the world that you and I live in. We've built entire enterprises that normalize our struggles. We're now readily able to admit, yeah, you know what I struggle with? Anxiety, body image, suicidal thoughts, dysphorias of all kinds. I admit that, but there is a solution readily at hand. There's this chemical solution This talk therapy, this behavioral intervention, this promising gene therapy. If I just do the right things, think the right things, reorganize my environment correctly, get rid of toxic elements, toxic people, increase my positivity and wellness, then I can overcome this thing. And here comes Jesus. And he breaks into our modern world, just like he broke into the disciples' world, and he asks, Why then? Why then is it written 
of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. If it's true that we just needed better theories of human behavior, a little more expertise, better therapies, isn't God kind of foolish to think that his beloved son must suffer many things? Why then is it written? What's Jesus trying to do here? He's trying to loosen the disciples' hands from clinging to their ability, to their belief in their ability to reform themselves. And he's doing the same for you and me too, because we have the same problem. So then point three, how does he do it? What remedy do we need? If we can't rely on our ability, we're going to have to rely on his. What gives us confidence that that's actually a good idea? It's because Jesus not only understands how locked in the disciples are to their own agenda, but because he's even more locked in to rescuing them so they can be with him. You go back through this passage and you realize he's the key actor throughout the entire thing especially how, in how he engages them to bring them to where he is, to enable them to respond to his call to follow him. Look at everything that he does for them here. How it's not their idea to see his glory, it's his. Verse 2, that he led them up a high mountain. How they don't have insight into his glory, but he reveals himself to them. Verse 2, he's transfigured before them. His father says to them, verse 7, this is my beloved son. They don't have insight God takes it on himself to give them insight. He's committed to giving it to them. They don't return alone down the mountain. After the voice speaks, they look around suddenly, verse 8, and no longer see anyone with them. Elijah's gone, Moses is gone, the cloud is gone, but Jesus is not gone. He didn't leave them. He's not done yet what he came to do to restore them, and so he's staying with them. They don't return alone. They don't teach themselves what they need to know, verses 12 to 13. He takes that burden on himself as well. He did not leave the guys who still have not grasped his glory. And he won't leave you until you do as well. When he calls you to follow him, he commits himself to making sure that you're going to have everything that you need in order to know him. And he will do that for you, just like he did it for these guys who are still challenging him. These guys who are going to demonstrate again two more times, they still haven't gotten it. These guys who still have not been fully restored to him and his agenda, despite Elijah having come. But guys who will be restored, because Jesus is going to make sure that they are. He gave them his presence. That's something that you and I need as well. But he gave them much more than that. He did what he came to do for them. He suffered, was rejected, and died, and then was raised. Because without that, they could not be restored to him. Even though he's God, he can't simply talk them out of their belief in the power of human goodness. He does talk to them. He gently confronts them. You have to talk to the people around you. He calls them to have less confidence in human abilities points them to have greater confidence in what he'll do for them. But as the next two chapters show, even his talking is not enough to change their hearts. They're still not on board. And so he keeps to what he planned to do, voluntarily chooses to suffer to restore them. He chooses to be judged for their sin 
their belief in their own ability to be good. He chooses to be judged before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes so that they won't be destroyed. And that is part of the glory of God. That's part of God's nature that you cannot see until the cross. God's nature is to love people so much that he gives them what they need regardless of what it costs him so that they can be restored to him and to each other. This is part of the glory of God that's fully seen at the cross, and this is what works. This is what transforms people's lives. How do you know it works? That it's actually enough? Because at some point, Peter told his disciple Mark everything that happened on the, ma- on the mountain. And Mark wrote it all down, including how essential Christ's suffering and death are. At some point, Peter was finally fully on the same page as Jesus. At some point, he was restored. How else do you know? The apostles all embraced lives of suffering. Most every one of them died in horrible ways, simply for the privilege of proclaiming Christ's glory in suffering and dying for them. Their hearts really were changed. They were restored by Christ's suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. How else do you know? You told it to yourself earlier today. We recited the Apostles' Creed this morning. It's the most ancient statement of faith that we have. It's an early witness to the apostolic teaching. You can find the roots well established in the early second century. Go back maybe later and notice what the Creed says about Jesus' life and earthly ministry about what he did while he was on earth. Out of everything that it could choose to focus on, it only says one thing. It says that he suffered. That's it. Sums up in his entire life and ministry. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. What's that tell you? The apostles got it. And then they passed it on to you and me. They viewed suffering as essential to Christ's glory, essential to his identity, essential to his mission. They got it just like Jesus saw it, just like God saw it, just like it was written. Finally restored to God, on board with his agenda, not their own. This passage does what it calls you to have less confidence in your own ability, but it also calls you to have much greater confidence in the love of this one who calls you to follow him, this one who will never leave you, who will keep teaching you, who's so committed to you, he suffered for you in order to restore you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you knew what you came for. Thank you, Lord, that you did what you had to do for me, for my friends here, for your church. Thank you, Lord, that All of the people who tried to dissuade you were not able to. Thank you, Lord. We are going to thank you and praise you for this for the rest of our lives. Lord, we're about to remember you in communion. We're about to remember what it is that you did. Lord, we are remembering that with gratitude, appreciation, because we would not have been wise enough to have asked for this. So thank you. Lord, come be with us by your Spirit now, in Jesus' name.